Last week, we had the great honour of uh, coming together for Vision Sunday. Libby and I just had the wonderful opportunity to share some of the things the Lord had laid on our hearts. And um, what's really good is that we'd been praying really for the church long before we ever knew the Lord would bring us here. And what I wanted to do was just remind you of a few words that Libby shared uh, last week about the church that uh, she dreamt of, the church that she sees. And um, what's really interesting about vision is it always comes through one person and it's Libby's job and my job to share and craft those things together. But what I really want to do is remind you of the dream that was laid on her heart for the church. And this is what she said in 2016, whilst at Bible college, this is Libby speaking, not me. Um, I won't do a voice because that's, that'd be weird, right? Um, before I met Julian, I wrote a description of a church that I believe was and still is a God-given dream of a church. I wrote this, I dream of a vibrant church. One which is a place of safety and healing for broken people. A welcoming community to which everyone can find a sense of belonging. A place where people can encounter Jesus. Discipleship is key. It is a place where people can learn and grow. A place where a relationship with Jesus can be pursued. True intimacy. A place where spiritual mums and dads support and mentor younger believers. A place of sending as well as bringing in. A missional community engaged in short and long-term mission activities. But a place and a community who are as missional at work on a Monday as they would be on a week's long mission abroad. A community totally devoted to Jesus, demonstrating the love of Jesus to the broken world in which we live. I dream of a church living by faith, being of a voice of hope and being known by love to reach the least, the lost, the near and the far off. And uh, what really stirred our hearts was what we'd seen in the prayer weeks, uh, prayer uh, events across this week. We had three prayer events. Just raise a hand if you managed to make one of those. It's okay if you didn't. Um, but what, what was really encouraging is that on average, you normally get about 10, 15% of the church coming to a prayer event. And we figured there's around about 50% over these past three events. Um, so that's about 100 to 110 people. There was 40 at the family prayer trail, which is incredible. And I, I think it'd be worth just honoring. I know the kids team are out in kids church, but uh, the kids and youth team, just the, some of the work they put in. Maybe we could just honor them by way of applause. But... What was all the more kind of wonderful to see was the way in which people were sharing the things that the discovering of what the Lord has put on their hearts. And what we want to do is discover not just what God is doing in our church, but what is God doing in your life? And how does that fit into the bigger picture? Uh, the reality is that we are a church that is active and a participatory church. We believe in being engaged, that we all have a role to play. And I know we've preached on that loads. But actually, we really want to live that out. And actually, what is it to unleash some of the gold that is inside all of you that form the church of Sutton Vineyard? And we're excited to see where the Lord is going to take those things. And what happened was a few people started to share a couple of words. And what I wanted to do was just highlight one of them this morning. And so I'm going to invite Wendy uh, at the most convenient time to come and share a word the Lord had laid on the heart. I'll just keep speaking to buy a little bit of time while she's given stage directions. And at this point Wendy's now going to come forward and share that word. <laughs> the stage in front of the keyboard that was the instruction. Good morning everybody. Um, at the end of very end very end of a prayer meeting on Monday night it was our discovery prophetic prayer meeting online. Right at the very end of the meeting I, I felt the Lord speaking to me and showing me a picture and because it was the very end of the meeting I sort of skated over it a bit but um, as I've the week progressed I, I began to dwell on this picture and, and spontaneously shared it with Julian on uh, Wednesday 
Um, and it obviously was quite important to him, so that's really good, and I'm sharing it with you now. Um, I found myself remembering and thinking, very clear memories, of when I used to love to host dinner parties. Um, and when I had a dinner party, I liked to do it properly. So um, I would take a lot of time and trouble over laying the table and making sure it looked beautiful. Um, I would have my three or four course menu absolutely ready with my recipes I would know and I would know what I was doing. I like my guests to arrive on time, not early and not late. Um, and I, I, I really liked my dinner parties to go well. And I was thinking on this and thinking, okay, what else all that about? And I realized that what that was about was that I liked to be in control of my dinner parties down to the last detail. And then I found myself, as I waited on the Lord, it was as though I was watching a BBC news film of a refugee camp and a whole queue of very hungry and needy people queuing for food. And as they did, and they got to the food table, there was bowls of food, and they were served. It was just scoop, plate, move on, scoop, plate, move on. There was no laid table, there was no beautiful environment, but these people were hungry. And actually, they didn't care, they just wanted the food. They were really hungry, and what mattered to them was the food that they were given uh, that was what they needed. That was what was going to sustain their lives. The people, I realized, who came to my dinner parties didn't come because they were hungry. They might have come for all sorts of reasons, but because it wasn't because they were starving. And the contrast between these two pictures had me pondering um, and pondering. And I think the Lord has something to say to us out of that. Um, our dinner parties are beautiful. But hungry people just need food. Amen. Tremendous. Amazing. Uh, and when Wendy shared that with me, I'd been praying for about two weeks over what I shared this morning, and it's the parable of the banquet. Uh, and several people had shared a similar word to that. And actually to recognize that God is stirring us for all of the great things that we have as a church going on. And you, you've heard Hannah just share some of the amazing things we've got coming up. All of these things that build us up, that encourage us, that strengthen us. But also it is for a purpose. That is the food. That is the banquet. That is the dinner party. But it is also for others. It is also for the least, the lost, the near and the far off. And uh, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to land in two areas. First is going to be Psalm 34, if you're someone who likes to get ahead and get ready. And then the other is Luke 14. But don't worry, they're going to come up on screen and I'm going to read them out. Uh, this is what it says in Psalm 34, verse 8 to 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his ho you are who is... Oh, oh. What does that say? It's wrong in my notes. Taste and see that... I should read from this screen, right? Uh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. The lions may grow weak and weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is a psalm written by King David, and he's on the run from King Saul. Several thousand years ago, he's fleeing for his life. He's being chased. He's up against it. And he writes this psalm, taste and see the Lord is good. He writes this psalm in a place where he's cut off from resource. He's cut off from food. He's cut off from the supplies he needs to defend himself 
And he's managing to pen this psalm, taste and see the Lord is good. Like when you're hungry, that's a difficult thing to write. When you're hungry, it's a difficult thing to pray. Yet this is what King David prays. And there's a sense in which our souls can be starved and we can be spiritually malnourished. There's a sense in which that an unsettled mind can be starved of peace. There's a sense in which a tired body can long for a comfy bed. And it's in those moments the writer of this psalm is saying the same thing, taste and see the Lord is good. That even though I'm in a place where I don't feel like I've got everything I need, I'm trusting that the God I serve, the God that I love, the God that I engage with on a spiritual and emotional and personal level has my best interest at heart always. Now I've got a, a young boy, he is 16 months old. And what's interesting is even in our time that I've been here, many of you have seen him take his first steps. You've seen him uh, start to use words. And one of the things that we've discovered in raising our boy is that when he was very small, uh, which isn't all that long ago, he was content to eat anything. And I was really, really quite excited as a father. You know, I could give him cucumber and he would devour cucumber. I could give him a red pepper. I could give him avocado when money wasn't so tight. I could give him uh, all sorts of good greens and vegetables. And I was so proud. I thought, this is great. Even though I don't necessarily uh, eat those things all the time like I should, I'm really proud that my boy is going to raise up, uh, be raised up with all of this nutrition. Isn't it great? Have you had that feeling as a parent? And then, like, a little bit of time goes on, and I think this happens somewhere around about a weekend with the grandparents. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not casting any blame. They may watch this. They may, they may okay. Uh, uh, but at some point, I'm pretty sure he came back to us after a weekend with them, and his appetite had changed. Right, all of a sudden, he didn't want cucumber, and he didn't want red pepper, and he didn't want avocado. Sounds very posh. Uh, he didn't want all of the good stuff. He now wanted ice cream. He now wanted cake. He now wanted uh, mini cheddars and he wanted crisps and all of these kind of things. And my dreams just sort of got dashed in that moment. And there was this moment where he tasted and seen something better, at least in his perception, right? So he was all of this good stuff, but he'd, he'd now had a sample of something that was way beyond his usual palate. And there's no going back to cabbage when you've had cake. It's just not possible. And so now what I have to do is I have to blend things up. I have to sneak it into his diet to make sure he's getting the nutrition alongside the other stuff. If I can make it look like something unhealthy, but it's really healthy, I have won. And so many of you will know that feeling. You'll know that, that tension. But that's kind of what we see in, in this psalm, that when we taste and see the Lord is good, there's no going back to what we had before. And many of us are sat in this room because we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. We have experienced something spiritually that has transformed our hearts. And now we have that. It's hard to imagine any other way. It's hard to go back to what we had before. But the reality is there's people all around us all the time that are yet to taste and see. They're still living on carrot sticks. They're yet to sample the, that's not really a nutritious analogy, but they're yet to sample the cake of heaven, right? They're yet to sample that thing that tastes so sweet that they've never experienced. And the reality is that you and I get to be seated at the table. We get to be seated uh, in this place together. We, we, later, we're going to be literally taking communion from a table. And it's this symbolism that we share in something with Jesus, 
But there's many people who don't yet have a seat at the table. And there's many reasons for that. But sometimes it can be so hard to get to the place where you and I have already had that experience. There's so many barriers in the world that we live in. There's so many things that stop people entering into this feast that you and I get to share in. And so one of the things the Lord laid in our hearts was to extend the table, to go beyond. If you ever had to prepare a wedding feast... Ever had to do, ever had to sit down and do the seating plan for a wedding feast? We had 23 tables at our wedding of 10 people. And we had to work out where are we going to sit everybody. And, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm a people person. I really like being around people. And what happens is you think that everyone that gets on with you are going to get on with each other. And maybe I was a little bit naive, but you know, when Libby said, okay, you can do the, the seating plan. I did the seating plan and I just sort of put people everywhere. It's be great, they're going to hang out, it's going to be good. I then brought the seating plan before my wife, the bridesmaids, uh, the groomsmen, who were just as unaware as I was. And we looked at the seating plan and we quickly realised, oh no, there's some people that really should not be seated together at our wedding. And so we had to do this kind of deep dive on where do we manoeuvre people. And it turns out it was all really good, everything was brilliant, we had a great celebration. But I remember the tension of thinking, actually, how do we extend the table so that Everybody in the room that knows me, that knows Libby, that's connected to us, that loves us, that wants to celebrate with us, will do it in a way where they're not forced to sit for an entire day next to somebody who they don't necessarily get along with. And I've got a very diverse family, and so we, we spent a lot of time praying, fasting, and, and weeping. No, maybe not weeping. And we put people together, and it was a wonderful day, but there's that sense in which, as we extend the table, it challenges us to look at the way in which we do life. It challenges us to look at the way in which we do our day to day. And it's a beautiful analogy for the church. Because actually to extend the table for those that don't yet know Jesus, to extend the table so that they might share in the goodness that you and I have for those of us that know Jesus, means that we're going to have to look at things a little bit differently. It means we're going to have to open the doors in a new way. It means we're going to have to do new things. It means, someone shared this in our prayer group, that sometimes our small groups might look a little bit different. They might push us out of our comfort zone. That actually we might have to engage with people in a way that we never knew we could or should have before. And it's only when you begin to realise that we're here for others. And I think we know that deep down, we've always known that. When we begin to realise that God has put something good inside of us to share we'll overcome pretty much any hurdle to get the message out there. We'll overcome pretty much any inconvenience to make sure that there's room for everybody. And if you've got your Bible, would you turn to Luke 14? Because this is really where Jesus began to challenge the religious leaders of the day. He began to challenge his disciples and he began to challenge those who thought they knew what righteousness was about. You see, in the first century, it was all about having the right answers. It was all about looking to be holy. It was always about looking to be clean and above all the kind of bad stuff that happened in society. And Jesus sort of flips on his head and he goes, no, no, I, the father's interested in the lost. He's interested in those who are far off. And it's not that he's not interested in those that already know him. It's that he wants them to share in it. And he, he begins with this, Luke chapter 14, verse 7. 
Uh, uh, let me set the scene for you. Jesus has arrived at a Pharisee's house. This is a, a notable religious leader, uh, very prestigious. And it's quite unusual because Jesus is known for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's got a bit of a reputation for hanging out with people that don't seem all that righteous. And so on a rare occasion, he finds himself doing what he should do, which is uh, expected of a religious teacher to go to the prestigious. And they put on a dinner party. They put on a wonderful feast and they begin to invite people in. It's the Sabbath day. Uh, and what has happened is that a man had arrived at the door before they began to eat the meal who was, uh, had these swol uh, swollen body issues going on. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, is it, is it right for me to heal on the Sabbath? And they remain silent and he heals the man. The man goes away and then they go into this house recognizing something unique is about to take place. And verse seven picks it up here. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I don't know if this really happened in, in the sense that uh, we, we have any history about what happened around this meal. But I wonder if Jesus just waited when everyone started coming into the room to see where they would sit. I like to think he did. I like to think he just took a moment to people watch as people piled into the room and you know you have the, the Pharisee at the head of the table and you have a few of the prestigious guests all working out where should I sit? How important am I in society? How prestigious do the people in this room think I am? And do I think I'm better than those people? And so you can almost imagine Jesus watching them take their place. And in that context, maybe shares these words uh, that challenges our hearts. That actually sometimes we come into a place thinking, this is all about me and I've been guilty of that I've come into places thinking actually what can I get from this what will fill me up what will be added to me and it's not necessarily wrong to think in those terms initially but Jesus comes in and says actually we ought to be considering others that actually the challenge for you and I living in the kind of society we do is is to be countercultural. Our culture says that we've got to look out for number one. Our culture says that we've got to paint ourselves always in the best light, that we need to elevate ourselves. We need to contend for ourselves. And sometimes you do. But actually Jesus says, be humble. For those that exalt themselves will be humbled. Those that humble themselves will be exalted. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, that when we start to prefer others in love, what we find is that we begin to rise with them. That as we start to honour those who are considered less than, actually God takes a look at our heart and goes, you know what, I'm going to raise you up as well. And so he starts to challenge them with this parable, but then he goes deeper, he doesn't leave it alone. Verse 12 says this, then Jesus said to the host, the Pharisees whose, ha whose house he was in, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Now, is Jesus saying, don't invite your relatives to dinner? 
You didn't read that in the Bible. That's not what he's saying. You still have to have the in-laws over. You have, to, you have to still go to the parties. You have to still celebrate one another. He's not saying those things are bad. What he's saying in the context of when you celebrate, when you give a feast and when you invite people over and you have this sense of honour, actually we've got to value every single person. We've got to make sure there's room for everybody at our table. That ignore the social contract so that you and I can reach the least and the lost. When we think about church and we think about how we reach people, typically it's those that are familiar with being in this environment that come. But actually when you find somebody that is desperate and hungry spiritually and they encounter the goodness that we have, what you do is you get to be a part of the life transformation of somebody's story. You get to be a part of God unleashing his story of redemption in their lives. And their story becomes your story. And Jesus doesn't leave it alone, he presses it further. He says this in verse 16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. The dinner party was set. As Wendy had shared, they'd got everything orchestrated, the table had been laid, RSVPs had been sent out. Now the time is for it to begin, verse 18. But they all began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Verse 19, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to test them out. Please excuse me. Verse 20 says this, still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Verse 22 says this, sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get to taste of my banquet. I want you to think of this scene right now that he's round at a dinner table, he's round at the prestigious religious leader's house, notable people are there and he shares this parable. It is quite jarring and Jesus is sort of notorious for being the dinner guest that doesn't play by the rules. If you go to a dinner party, you probably shouldn't be sharing parables like this, probably shouldn't be challenging people in this way, but the reason that Jesus came was to seek and save the lost and the very reason we exist cannot be ignored. And so regardless of the context, Jesus presses the challenge. And that great sense of self-importance that people would have had at the table, eating with Jesus, that great sense of disconnect that they may be experienced, was shattered in that moment. See, these are people that understood how to obey the rules. They understood how to do the right things. These were people that would tithe on spices oregano, herbs, chili. They would, be t they would, they would cut aside 10%. They were so religious and so particular. They thought they had it all together in terms of being looked up to in society. And what Jesus is doing, he's sharing this challenge that cuts across all that and says, actually, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, prestige is found in humility. Elsewhere, he says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And it's the hardest thing because what he's saying to us is that if we follow him, we're to be self-sacrificing. Right? To, to follow Jesus is 
the free gift that costs you everything. It, it's open to all. The grace of God is available to every single one of us. There's no charge. And then when we receive it, what Jesus says to us, would you give me everything? Well, that's a hard challenge. Actually, would you give me every consideration? Would you give me every position of honour? Would you give me every aspect of your life so that I might change your heart for my purpose, which is to reach the least, the lost, the near and the far off? And it cuts us because there's times when it's incredibly inconvenient. I was coming back from the tube. All the best stories start like that. And <laughs> we'd been in London and uh, we were at the bus stop with this guy and uh, he was covered head to toe in tattoos. You shouldn't judge, but the reality is we do. Like we look at that and we go, don't know. <laughs> and so I sat there and we were with Judah, um, our, our boy. And it's great because he's just a breakdown of barriers, you know, when he smiles. And so this, this, this hard-faced man, head to toe in tattoos, just looked like he was very, very agitated. And he just cracks a smile. And what happens is we have an inroad for a conversation. We just start chatting with the guy. And you can see, like, we're in a bit of a ropey area where we were getting the bus. And um, you can see people sort of clocking what, what's going on here. And we just start to share our life a little bit with this guy while we wait for the bus. We just start to swap stories. What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. What's that? Is that Italian food? Is that... <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, think, think like vicar, but just different, a bit more laid back. And uh, so we, we, <laughs> we start to talk with him and we just, you know, he, he didn't give his life to Jesus. He didn't come to church. We, we invited him. But what happened was we're just trying to find ways to extend the table, just trying to open the doors. Now, I wonder if we did that like 20, 30 times across the year, what stories might come out? Because actually he doesn't know these things exist. It's not in his world. He's not aware there's a banquet. He's not aware there's a feast going on. He's not aware there's even a place where he can come and eat. We're talking spiritually as a metaphor. Actually, sometimes we're talking practically too. But actually, as we begin to open up the doors and we begin to extend the table, what we do is we get people in who can share in the feast. Just go back to verse 22. and These ideas of roads and lanes come out in the parable. Verse 22 says this, Servant had said what you ordered has been done but there's still room right so, so what happened in the parable was they'd gone out they'd got the 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 crippled the lame the poor and all of those kind of uh, archaic first century words for those who were maybe struggling and they brought them in and, and it says there's still room right and so what we think is as, as a church we need to reach those that are in a place of obvious need but the bible tells us we do that but there's there's room for everyone there's still room for more. There's room for people in a place of not so obvious need. Verse 23, then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house might be full. And so it got me thinking of this challenge that we can meet the obvious need, but the reality is you and I are surrounded by people that need Jesus all the time. Every single one of us, we're connected to so many people that need Jesus. And their needs might not be obvious, but the Bible tells us it's not just for those with obvious needs, but to compel those who have less obvious needs. That it's the feast is for them too. This great, this great salvation that we have, this great grace that we have in knowing Jesus, this great forgiveness that's in our lives is for everybody. And I want you to notice as well that it wasn't even that he was getting rid of the RSVP guests, those that were supposed to be at the party, it was just as available for them as it was for those that he brought in in the end. That you and I are the RSVP guests. 
we're already in, we're already at the feast, we already have our invite. And actually there was, no, there was no disregard from Jesus for those people. What he was saying is, play your role at the feast, there's room for everybody. And actually the question that you and I have got to ask as we're at the table is, Lord, what is my role in helping extend the feast? What is my role in helping extend the table? What roads can I go into? What lanes can I find? Where are the highways and byways in my life? where I begin to let people in. I call it name-dropping Jesus, right? Because what we do is, you know, someone says, how was your week? And you go, it's great. On Saturday, I did a family thing. Sunday, we were busy. Sunday afternoon, we did a family thing. Actually, name-dropping Jesus just goes like this. What do you do Sunday? Or well, Sunday, you know, um, we're, we're people of faith. So we go to church. Um, and uh, I was just in a place where I was really struggling this week. And I found a couple of people to pray for me. This might not be your thing, but um, it really helped me. What I found was the peace of God. Uh, and you'll soon know if they don't want to talk anymore, right? <laughs> you'll know quickly. They'll be like, okay, that's great. I'll move on. But what I found is that people will linger into the conversation. And what, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a pressured thing. You're not trying to work on somebody. All you're doing is just opening your life up a little bit, right? You're just name dropping Jesus. So when someone asks you, how's your week going? What's going on? And Bring your faith into it, not in a hard way, but just in a subtle way. And you'll find yourself in conversations at bus stops with people who need to eat at the feast. You'll find yourself in conversations at work, and some of you might need to be very sensitive about those things. Um, being in a place where they could do with the kind of thing you're describing. You could find yourself, like Libby often does with her barista. I'm sure she'll share some stories where, oh, over coffee being made, she's just sharing her faith. Not in a, oh, this is really intense, I've got to tell them about Jesus, but in a, I'm just going to be open about my life. And as we do that, it's one of the ways that we begin to extend the table. It's one of the ways we begin to open the doors. It's one of the ways that we begin to reach the least, the lost, the near, and the far off. And so, what roads do we need to discover in our lives? What lanes do we need to open up again in order to be transparent in every area of our life, not just the stuff we are enjoying, but also in the way in which God is working in our hearts and lives. And what if we took this precious time to allow the Holy Spirit to stir us for the people around us? That actually the joy that we have in knowing Jesus might be shared with them. There's many practical ways we can do that as a church. We're going to be looking at those, but actually to take this on a personal level as a personal challenge. How can I be the person because you might be the only person connecting to them that would share Jesus just by the way you live, just by the way you speak, just by the way you carry yourself. If you're under pressure at work, they'll be watching you, right? If you're, un if you're coming up against it, they'll be watching you. When you have that conversation, do you know what? The thing that's carrying me through is my faith. That will speak volumes. And what if we were to find ourselves in a place like this where we were able to share stories Bus stop stories, coffee shop stories, tube ride stories, which are always the most unique. Work stories. Or how did you arrive at the feast? Or well, so-and-so at work was going through something and they told me about how their faith is helping them. Could be something to pray into.